Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A quick content warning. This podcast features adult language and delves into difficult themes that include sexual assault. The year was 1998, and the nationally syndicated TV news program Inside Edition ran a story about a red carpet premiere that took place in Austin, Texas. Here's a clip. The stars glistened on a rainy night in the laid-back town of Austin, Texas, at a recent premiere of The Newton Boys. Megahonks Matthew McConaughey and Ethan Hawke walked the red carpet. Even Matthew's acting colleague Sandra Bullock made the scene. Celebrity-obsessed reports like this were not out of the ordinary for this tabloid news series that hit its zenith during the O.J. Simpson trial and was once the TV home for Bill O'Reilly before he went to Fox News. But what makes this particular news story outside of the norm for a program like Inside Edition is that rather than focusing on the glamorous details of the lives of svelte, conventionally beautiful stars like Matthew McConaughey, Ethan Hawke, or Sandra Bullock, this particular story was focused on a nearly 400-pound redheaded man from the internet who was wearing a fedora while in attendance at this red carpet event. But also working his way down the press line was a guy you probably don't recognize, yet Harry Knowles has become one of Hollywood's most formidable forces. He's the 26-year-old creator of the Ain't It Cool website, which turns out the inside buzz on movies through a network of worldwide spies. This news report on webmaster Harry J. Knowles has to be one of the first instances of someone crossing over from the burgeoning world of the internet, which many people, including myself, did not have regular consistent access to at the time, to a mainstream outlet like a nationally syndicated TV news program. It was also for many people an introduction to an online world that seemed crazy or even kind of dangerous. It's a little scary to me, but like when Lethal Weapon 4 was filming the uh, gas station blowing up in uh, LA, I had like 76 people on set, you know, that were covering that. I mean, it's like all of a sudden, it's like, you know, double what CNN had to cover OJ. His spies include actors, agents, and directors, but more importantly, regular folks who sneak into test screenings. You are listening to Download, a deep dive, long form podcast documentary series that will explore the forgotten and sometimes complicated and problematic oral histories of the internet. Specifically examining the moments when our digital world collides with, quote unquote, our real lives. This entire first season, titled The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, will explore one of the very first times a collision between the digital and real world took place. Before Rotten Tomatoes, Netflix, or even social media, Ain't It Cool News was a central hub for movie fans on the internet. Launched in 1996, the website was founded by Austin, Texas native Harry J. Knowles, a semi-paralyzed man who lived in his father's basement. But despite his humble, unlikely origins, Ain't It Cool News infamously disrupted the Hollywood marketing machine by running unauthorized scoops, set reports, and production photos that were sent in by spies, as well as reviews of uncompleted movies. And in doing so, Ain't It Cool News became a monolith presence on the internet, both for movie fans as well as professionals and Hollywood elites working in the film industry. To describe the impact that Ain't It Cool News once had on film culture, here's C. Robert Cargill, who used to write for the website for more than a decade under the pseudonym Massaworm. It was it was Rolling Stone in the 60s. Like it was it was crazy pants. It was it was just fucking gnarly. It became Rolling Stone. Everyone in Hollywood was reading. Um, if you were working in Hollywood and you owned a computer, you read Ain't It Cool News the same way you would read Variety or uh, Hollywood Reporter. The website was certainly a huge deal for me when I was growing up in North Carolina in the 1990s and spending way too much time watching movies and surfing the internet. I was thousands of miles away from Hollywood, which is where I wanted to be but the site convinced me for years that I was getting the real, unfiltered inside dirt on how filmmaking worked, as well as how movies were being made and unmade by the power struggles within the entertainment industry. But rather than take my word for it, here's Jasmine Marriott, who lived in California and was a fan of the site like me. 
I had a point in time where, you know, I'm a single mom, I have three kids, and this was in the early 2000s, and I didn't have a lot of options for babysitters. Uh, my mom had passed away, um, and I was kind of housebound for a while. So being that I'm a huge movie geek, you know, I'm going to, and the internet is, you know, it's, it's, it's popping at this point, you know, it's, again, early 2000s, ain't it cool at that time? that's when they were really hitting their stride between, you know, being just this little, you know, tiny movie uh, based website to starting to get some actual recognition. Like Harry was actually starting to, you know, build up the site in terms of getting name recognition in the industry and getting access to things and stuff like that. I said that Jasmine was a fan of Ain't It Cool News like me, but the truth is she liked it even more than I did. In fact, she spent so much time on the site's chat room that they eventually made her into a moderator. Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of it was an unfiltered way for us all to kind of be obnoxious with each other. Like since we couldn't all be in a room together being drunk and obnoxious, we we're all kind of in a virtual room together being drunk and obnoxious. Um, you know, nerds before nerds became cool. I was a moderator and Harry came in and I was a girl. I was one of the few girls that was actually in the chat room. So you know, and of course when he first came in, I'm like, holy shit, that's, you know, that's fucking Harry Knowles. And, you know, and of course we're fangirling. We're like, oh my God, you know, this is Harry Knowles, you know, the person who runs the site and he knows everybody, he knows everything. He has all these connections and holy shit. He's like, you know, the, the king nerd of everything that we love. The rise and fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News will explore the impact, for better and for worse, that both the website and its creator had on cinema, the internet, and popular culture in general. Batman and Robin was the state of the art when this website started. Now look where we are. It's a different world, and we definitely help push the needle towards that world. This includes spawning a legion of copycat nerd culture and movie news websites that created a near-deafening echo chamber of enthusiasm for science fiction, horror, and superhero films, leaving very little oxygen in the room for anything else. We will also delve into the origins of Ain't It Cool News and other movie news websites from the early internet that ultimately created the online fanboy movement of cinema that went from counterculture to mainstream and rages on to this very day. But in doing so, we will also not shy away from the many controversies, infights, and betrayals that happened behind the scenes. We basically went on strike, and I remember telling Danny, he said, look, we are not working for him. Fuck him. And uh, she actually told me that he said he that he said he wanted to physically fight me. We will question what we gained and lost when the film industry recalibrated its machine to regain control of the narrative and transform itself into a delivery system for everything fans think they want without considering what we might need. There's been the Captain Americas. There's been the Star Wars movies. There's every single superhero movie is going to be done in the next 20 years. We've seen CGI films of the world freezing, burning up bling blown apart like there's almost nothing left to do and perhaps most importantly we will explore the controversies that would ultimately leave ain't it cool news mired by infamy culminating with the final death blow that was a series of accusations that emerged in 2017 that harry knowles sexually assaulted and sexually harassed multiple women associated with the austin film going scene i can say based on people that i spoke to who had had exper other experiences with Harry or had directly seen Harry with other people who were not comfortable at all going on the record for various reasons, didn't want their name associated with it. Yes, it was definitely worse. There was, there was a lot of stuff because people who had been victimized by him didn't feel comfortable sharing. And I, I understand why. And in doing so, we will try to discover what can and should be done to make geek and nerd culture, as well as the internet, a safer, more inclusive space for people who aren't straight white men. All of this and more as we tell one of the greatest and most unlikely stories from the Wild West days of the early internet. Now let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Episode 1, Citizen Knowles and the Lord of the Geeks. News on the march! Legendary filmmaker Orson Welles once said, If you want a happy ending, 
That depends, of course, on where you end your story. There are many times when we could have ended the story of Harry J. Knowles and his website, Ain't It Cool News, specifically before 2017, and it would have been a happy ending. Wells, of course, was the director of Citizen Kane, a film regarded in some circles as the greatest movie of all time. And in the bizarro, Comic-Con cultured universe we live in today, it is in many ways similar to the story of internet movie news maven Harry J. Knowles. Who is Harry Knowles? That's a fair question, especially if you're not as movie-obsessed as I was during the early days of the internet. Here's a clip from a movie that might break it all down. Harry Knowles! Harry who? Hello. Uh, this man is the ultimate fanboy here, Eric. His website, Any Cool News, it's like every geek's homepage, man. Yeah. Which one are you's Windows? Me. I'm Windows. <laughs> nice to meet you. Oh, oh, you just heard a clip from the 2009 nerdcore comedy Fanboys, which featured actor Ethan Suppley in an inexplicably violent portrayal of Harry Knowles. Odd fact, Suppley would be one of three different actors to play Harry Knowles, or characters inspired by Knowles. Horatio Sands played Knowles during a cold open sketch on Saturday Night Live, opposite fellow cast member Chris Parnell as George W. Bush. Now let's ask some tough questions here. Uh, yeah, the chubby guy from Ain't It Cool News. <laughs> A serious question? How kick-ass is that new Matrix trailer? <laughs> it is the opinion of this administration that it is totally kick-ass. <laughs> Over here, yes. And the office star Rain Wilson played R.J. Spencer, a character he admits was based on Harry Knowles during an episode of the HBO series Entourage that takes place during San Diego Comic-Con. It's also an unverified rumor that after Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News trashed the script for a planned trilogy of Superman films written by J.J. Abrams in the early 2000s, that when Abrams was developing the pilot for the hit TV series Lost, he based the character of Hurley, a large fanboy who was obsessed with science fiction, on Knowles. Reason being, allegedly, there was no one J.J. Abrams wanted to leave on a deserted island filled with vicious polar bears and man-eating smoke monsters more than the webmaster of Ain't It Cool News. And while these portrayals represent facets of Knowles' personality, none would get closer to his personal truth more than Citizen Kane, a movie that was made 30 years before Harry was born. Citizen Kane tells the fictional story of Charles Foster Kane, who, much like Knowles, made a name for himself in the world of journalism and editorials. While Kane owned what would now be called a conglomerate of newspapers, Knowles founded and helped create the internet movie news website Ain't It Cool News, which he launched in 1996. Charles Foster Kane presented himself as a populist who used his newspapers to hold wealthy and powerful people accountable for backroom deals, monopolies, and other acts of corruption, as you can hear in this clip. I am the publisher of the Enquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. Knowles had similar aspirations. He used his website in a network of writers and guest contributors that he frequently referred to as spies and henchmen to go after the Hollywood power structure and hold them accountable for the many ways they would steamroll visionary creatives and, perhaps even more egregious than that, produce terrible, soulless movies that were frequently the result of filmmaking by committee and meddlesome test screenings. In a 1997 profile that ran in the New York Times magazine, Harry Knowles shared the same sentiment to interviewer Bernie Weintraub when he said, I want to tell people the truth. You see these ads in newspapers or on TV, the greatest movie ever made, fantastic film, and it's fake. It's just fake. It comes from newspapers you've never heard of. And I just hate when they do that. Families are tricked into paying 40 or $50 to see a bad movie. I'm not out to trash movies. That's not it. I'm just trying to cut through all the hype. Harry is referring to a movie marketing ploy wherein studios would run ads for movies featuring positive or even glowing review blurbs from completely unknown movie critics from newspapers or radio and TV stations that nobody had ever heard of before. This practice culminated in 2000 when Sony Pictures ran ads from a critic named David Manning who had positive things to say about many of their films, including the Heath Ledger film A Knight's Tale, which is a pretty good movie, and the universally reviled Rob Snyder film The Animal. If you've never heard of the film critic Dave Manning before, there's a good reason for that. He never existed. 
Sony had invented this critic purely out of thin air to sell movie tickets. So Harry wasn't wrong to attack studios for being less than honest to filmgoers. At the same time, despite Harry's stated mission to tell people the truth, his site frequently did the opposite from the very beginning. For instance, many of the so-called spies and henchmen who worked alongside Harry at Ain't It Cool News enhanced the mystique he gave the site by writing under code names. These code names included Moriarty, Quint, RoboGeek, Joe Hallenbeck, Nordling, Massaworm, Capone, Mr. Beaks, Hororella, Billy the Kid, Mira Jeff, Outlaw Vern, Ghost Boy, Neil Cumston, and one of my personal faves, Alexander DuPont, the latter of whom has an identity that is still a mystery to this day. And seriously, Alexandra, if you're listening to this show, please contact me. I would love to talk to you and hear your story. Anyway, by obscuring their identities, Harry achieved two things. The first thing he achieved might not have been intentional. However, by giving these writers imaginary names and backstories, while still maintaining his own name and identity, while also running a cartoon illustration of his face next to the site's masthead, Harry Knowles absorbed a lot of the credit for their work, both good and bad. The second thing he accomplished is that, along with their pseudonyms, Harry also imbued these writers with fake personas and backstories that further enabled him to blur the line between reality and the website's fiction, which in turn allowed Harry to frequently engage in activities that violated the ethical and moral boundaries that governed both journalism and film criticism. Here's Drew McWheeney, who wrote for Ain't It Cool News under the pseudonym Moriarty. And Harry would publish anything from anybody. And Harry frequently lied to you guys about, well, I have two sources. No, Harry would have one source that he'd never heard from before, but if he liked the story, he'd run it. And he would make up a backstory as to why it was okay. And that was the biggest sin I saw him commit on a massive level was the idea that all information is equal, as long as it's interesting. Honestly, the statement from Drew McWheeney reminded me a lot of the scene from Citizen Kane, where Charles Foster Kane is being admonished by his former mentor, Mr. Bernstein, for fabricating stories for his newspapers about an impending war between Spain and the United States. Is that really your idea of how to run a newspaper? I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. Charles, you know perfectly well there's not the slightest proof that this... Armada's off the Jersey Hello, coast. Mr. Bernstein. Excuse me, Mr. Can you Kane. prove it isn't? This just Mr. Bernstein, in. I'd like you to meet Mr. Thatcher. I'll just How do you do, Mr. Thatcher? Leland, uh, Mr. Thatcher, my ex-guardian. We have no secrets from our readers, Mr. Bernstein. Mr. Thatcher is one of our most devoted readers. He knows what's wrong with every copy of the Inquirer since I took over. Read the cable. Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. And at the end of their stories, both Charles Foster Kane and Knowles' aspirations were derailed by scandal. For Kane, it was an extramarital affair. For Harry Knowles, it was something far more serious. It was a series of accusations that he sexually harassed and sexually assaulted multiple women, which blew up in September 2017 during the initial salvo of the Me Too movement. Going back to the quote from Citizen Kane director about happy endings and how they depend on where we choose to end the story, if we were to end the story about Harry J. Knowles right now, in this moment, most people would agree that it would be a dark, depressing ending. Many would also agree that he probably deserves it. But it's at the end of the story that I want to rewind to where it begins. Like Kane, Knowles came from humble origins. Born on December 11, 1971, Harry Knowles grew up in the gnarly, extra-crispy hippie hamlet of Austin, Texas. Writer Paul Cullum was one of two authors who helped Harry Knowles write his book titled Ain't It Cool, which was released in 2002. Cullum says that even in the 60s, Austin was the perfect incubator to raise a geek culture connoisseur like the creator of Ain't It Cool News. You know, it's a it's the it's the kind of town where the book critics are the music critics are the film critics because it's these these culture mavens. Right. And it and it's because the university's there, but it's also just unlike anywhere else. It's just a kind of a it's built for geeks. It's built for people who know everything about everything. Austin, Texas is a place that in many ways is defined by the world-class artists who made the city their home at some point in their lives. From musicians like Janis Joplin and Towns Van Zandt, 
to actors like Matthew McConaughey and Sandra Bullock, to directors that include both Robert Rodriguez and Terrence Malick. Even other controversial digital media creators like Joe Rogan and Alex Jones call Austin, Texas their home. Austin, Texas-based illustrator Timothy Doyle says he would frequently see the latter when Doyle used to work at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema. Like, uh, Alex Jones was just like this idiot local guy who happened to have a public access TV show. And then uh, now the nation's problem as opposed to just Austin's problem. He used to come into the Alamo Drafthouse all the time to uh, screen his fake documentaries. And uh, you'd just you'd talk to him and he'd always admit... If you're on the staff talking to him, he'd be like, "Yeah, that's all bullshit, whatever. We just, you know, my fans are crazy. And then, and then he'd get on camera like, oh, the world's ending. You know, like, you don't believe any of this shit, man. But that was before uh, 9-11. Then he got started to get real serious after that because some, some dummy put him on CNN or something and he got real famous. You could say that Austin is defined by the many artists who lived here only to make a huge dent in the world. Paul Cullum adds that the city is equally defined by those who stayed behind. There were people there who were of world-class knowledge and talent that, you know, just kind of seeded the area. So it was a ferment and I was born into it and, or fell into it. And Harry was born into it. And, you know, there was, so you put them all in a concentrated place where the cheap state university is that has, that's endowed by an oil field. Harry Knowles' parents, Jay and Helen Knowles, were among those in Austin who stayed behind and tried to build something in this town. They were this pair of nerd culture gypsies who sold movie posters and comic books at fan conventions. In addition to that, they were part of a circle of movie lovers who would watch 16mm film prints of old films projected onto a bedsheet in the movie room they had in the second floor of their Victorian home. That's where Harry Knowles first caught the attention of Louis Black, an authority on arts and culture in Austin, Texas. Black co-founded the Austin Chronicle, which he ran for 30 years, as well as South by Southwest Festival. He also played a part in the Richard Linklater film Slacker, which is a very pivotal movie in the history of American independent cinema. He also has a role in my all-time favorite documentary, The Devil and Daniel Johnston. And seriously, if you've never seen that last movie, check it out. It's great. Anyway, here's Lewis Black. Oh, I became aware of Harry when he was 40 years old. I was friends with his parents, who had one of the comic book stores in town. And we used to go over to the parents' house and watch, like, an hour of trailers for like Night of the Grizzly Monster or The Blood That Ate the City. I mean, but he, I mean, he lived in the movie room. He was always a little bit of a brat, but he, he knew it was the extent of his knowledge was astonishing. And, he, you know, from early on, he was reading all the Golden Age comics. I mean, he was really, uh, he had a voracious appetite for film. In Harry's book, he describes this as an idyllic time in his life. His parents were together. They traveled to concerts and fan conventions and even renaissance festivals, selling everything from psychedelic light shows, movie posters, comic books and memorabilia, to jewelry, woodworking, metallurgy and macrame. And Harry was happy, even if from the outside one might consider it to be somewhat of a vagabond existence. That's where I met most of the colorful characters who were to become my first friends. Hippies and drifters and Vietnam vets who couldn't quite find their way back into society. But to a kid, they were like carnies or circus people. There were too many colors and loud explosions going off inside of them for most people to handle. But for me, they were a natural extension of the cartoons I was enslaved to. I think I was four when my parents first bought me a Question Authority t-shirt. I was schooled young in the value of eccentricity. If the story I was telling about the life of Harry Knowles ended here, it would probably be a happy story. I actually saw a picture on Reddit taken at the San Diego Comic-Con on July 30th, 1975. The convention was but a fraction of what it has become now, and Harry, who's three and a half years old at this time, is wearing hippie jeans and a t-shirt, while hanging out at a booth with a vendor who is showing him a hardcover collection of old Flash Gordon comics. Tugging at the table skirt, Harry looks impish, grinning from ear to ear lost in a place and a culture that brought him both comfort and joy. A rosebud moment, very much like the child version of Charles Foster Kane, as he played with a sled, infamously named Rosebud, at the beginning of Citizen Kane. Be careful! 
careful, Charles. Kane. Pull your muffler around your neck, Charles. Kane, I think we shall have to tell him now. Like Charles Foster Kane, Harry was plucked from his meager but rather joyous existence and plunged into a world of privilege. According to Harry's book, when he was 11 years old, his mother was lured by her family's immense wealth and under threat that she would be disinherited to leave Harry's father and take Harry and his just-born baby sister with her. From there, they drove more than four hours away to live at her extended family's ranch in a West Texas town called Seymour. The ranch was owned by her grandfather, Harry's great-grandfather, who was both wealthy and a real piece of work that wanted nothing more than to control the lives of both his daughters and his granddaughter, Harry's mom. Outside of guilting Harry Knoll's mom into leaving her husband and returning to the family ranch, perhaps the worst example of great-grandfather Portwood exerting control over his kin was when he had his other daughter, Helen Lee, Harry Knoll's great-aunt, essentially kidnapped by Texas Rangers and committed to a mental institution for being a lesbian. In an online genealogy page that Harry's father, Jay Knowles, wrote about the Portwood family, Jay mentioned that Mr. Portwood even had his daughter subjected to electroshock therapy in a ghastly attempt to cure her homosexuality. After Helen Lee's eventual release, she lived the rest of her life on the Portwood family ranch, just like her sister Paula Ann, Harry's grandmother, and ultimately Harry's mom. Here's another example from Harry's book, wherein he describes his great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, Harry Housel Portwood, born in 1905 in Decatur Wise County, was the patriarch of this clan. He had a paralyzed right hand where somebody had stabbed it to the tabletop in a barroom fight over a whore in a Depression-era speakeasy in Mineral Wells. I'm named for the cocksucker. And I stood over him one Sunday in 1990 after he'd fallen in the kitchen and cracked open his head, and I watched him die. They had rushed him to Dallas's Parkland Hospital, the same place they took Kennedy with his brains brocaded on his waistcoat. And I caught him half in and half out of consciousness. I whispered, die, and he flatlined seconds later. It was like he'd been waiting for that to leave the world behind. I can't say enough against the man. After this, Harry drops four sentences that imply such horror. I still grapple with what he's trying to imply here. For all practical purposes, he was like my grandfather. This is the Chinatown part. Uh, the reason why is that his daughter, my grandmother, Paula Ann Portwood, was raped at her 13th birthday party. And the product of that union was my mother, Helen Jane. So my mother and my grandmother were virtually raised as sisters. The awfulness of these four sentences really hits you in layers. Harry's statement that his own grandmother was raped when she was 13, during her birthday party no less, and then forced to live with the resultant child of that rape, Harry's mother, as if she were her sister, would surely drive most people over the edge. And Harry later confirms that his grandmother, Paula Ann, did in fact struggle with mental health issues for the rest of her life. In his book, Harry details a no-doubt traumatic experience that occurred in 1987 when his mother and grandmother stood on their respective porches at the family's ranch compound and, while standing 50 yards apart, calmly fired handguns at each other. Harry adds that he and his sister witnessed the entire violent episode while ducking behind a rolled-up carpet. Harry also mentions that previous summer, his sister witnessed a brutal fight between his mother and grandmother that left the older of the two with three broken ribs and a bruised larynx. It's clear to me that what Harry and his sister might have gained in terms of financial comfort by the move to the family's ranch was traded off by a complete loss of emotional stability and basic human safety. At the same time, one could make the case that while Harry loved both his mom and his father, his grandmother Paula Ann was just as great of an influence. Here's Eric Vespi, who began writing for Ain't It Cool News under the pseudonym Quint while he was still just a kid in high school. He was always very open about about his uh his crazy upbringing he was a huge fan of his his uh eccentric uh, grandmother and you know and he would talk about that um he hated his you know his kind of growing up in a in a shit kicker town and you know and, and he i know that the his mom and dad separating early early in his life was was a big deal for him diagnosed with schizophrenia 
Harry's grandmother would tell these wild, outlandish stories about how she got to hang out with Elvis Presley after he performed at a local dance hall, while the king of rock and roll bounced Harry's then five-year-old mother, Helen Jane, on his knee until she fell asleep. Harry's grandmother would also allege that she had a fling with James Dean while he filmed his third and final movie, Giant, in the nearby town of Marfa, Texas. I guess you're about the best-looking gal we've seen around here in a long time. I think. But these wild stories would often blend elements that were true. For instance, while no one could verify that Paula Ann Portwood had slept with James Dean on the set of Giant, it is true that she was a horse-riding double for Dean's co-star, Elizabeth Taylor. Harry's grandmother also claimed that she had rebuffed advances from John Wayne while playing a small part as a Mexican prostitute in the Alamo while actually doing the deed with Wayne's co-star on that film, actor Lawrence Harvey. Some of Paula Ann's stories would take a much darker turn. If this were a true crime podcast, I could probably spend at least two episodes unpacking the many details in the second chapter of Harry's book. This chapter, titled A Boy's Best Friend is His Mother, is a reference to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. It details many horrific events, including shootouts, suicides, ghosts, a wild story about robbing a poker party ran by the Arizona mob, murderous evil twins, and even a lost treasure. Paula Ann allegedly told a story about how legendary outlaws Quanta Parker and Jesse James secretly buried gold on the Portwood family ranch. But like many yarns weaved in the South, the line between reality and whimsical or even bizarre and sometimes disturbing folklore can be blurred. This is Texas, mighty colossus of the Southwest, a land of infinite variety and violent contrasts, but more than a state, here is a state of mind, manners, morals, emotions, of people who are often as exhilarating, exasperating, exciting as the land they belong to. And the same could be said of Ain't It Cool News, which presented itself as a place where one could get the true dirt on how movies were being made, and worst of all, unmade in Hollywood, while simultaneously presenting a purely outlandish, fantastical narrative about the people who created the site. C. Robert Cargill says one of the reasons he first admired Harry was for his gift as a storyteller. He's a raconteur. Um, like he, he knows how to spin, uh, spin a, a yarn. Uh, he knows how to tell a story. He knows what details to you know, go for. He's a good storyteller in that vein. So yeah, he was and charismatic, funny. Um, uh, somebody who always uh, really charmed a lot of people. Uh, but sometimes a lot of people got, it, you know, you, you know, that level of charisma also can very much turn people off. And so people also hated him um, and reviled him. But yeah, he was always surrounded by friends. Despite the many tensions and horrors that Harry may or may not have experienced growing up on the Portwood Ranch in Seymour, Texas, there are at least three details that I believe. First, both Harry and his sister grew up with immense wealth. Harry talks about how they had a full-size pool table and multiple arcade machines in their bedrooms. Harry also mentions that he could walk into any store in town, sign his name, and get whatever he wanted and simply have it charged to his family. Second, while Harry states that the closest movie theater was 110 miles away round trip from the Portwood family ranch, he was able to entertain himself with an entire inventory of his parents' collectibles store, which his mother gained possession of in the divorce. This inventory included 175,000 comic books, 30,000 paperback books, and 5,000 videotapes. Here's how Harry described it in his book. It was a huge amount of media, and while I never really explored this massive treasure trove before, since there was always something to do back in Austin, now I had nothing but time. It was like being in prison. You sit there and you read the entire library. To this day, I still have trouble talking to modern comics fans because they don't know the history of it. It's the same thing with film because I studied all these tapes going back to the 20s. The last and most tragic detail that I believe is that Harry's mom, Helen Jane, slid into pill and alcohol addiction, which would ultimately lead to her untimely death when she was blackout drunk in the middle of a house fire. And the reason I know this is because Harry abruptly shared this tragedy with very little context in his review of the Sandra Bullock rehab comedy, 28 Days. My mother was a big time alcoholic. When they found her body after the fire, her blood alcohol level was at 0.5. 
when she died. She was in an alcoholic coma, but I still remember the way she'd stumble, the way she would slide her hips weird while standing, that blank, unfocused stare with the ever-moving jaw and guttural sounds, the cruel things she'd say that were wonderfully funny to her, but the next day's realization would just force the bottle back to her mouth. With his mother tragically, painfully taken out of the picture, Harry and his sister were able to live with their father Jay again, and life appeared to have returned to the goodness that Harry knew when he was just a small kid. Harry put his college plans on hold in order to settle and take care of his mother's estate. All the while, he started to earn a living again, working at fan conventions with his father. It was at the conclusion of one of these conventions wherein yet another tragedy would befall Harry Knowles. Rushing backwards while pulling a rolling cart packed with 1,200 pounds of vintage and collectible movie posters, one sheets, and lobby cards, Harry made his way down a loading ramp of the Austin Convention Center en route to his van. At the base of the ramp, there was a drainage hose that escaped Harry's attention. The hose caught Harry's heel, and while he pivoted and tried to catch himself with his hands, the ensuing events were unavoidable. I will let Harry tell the rest of it here in the way he described it in his book. The dolly caught me square in the small of the back. It bucked me up and threw me another seven feet, just in time for it to roll over my back and both legs, partially paralyzing me. I lay on the sidewalk and I tried to roll onto my side, but I couldn't move my legs. I reached both arms back behind me and pulled my head down as far as I could into my sternum, like I'd seen a doctor do once to my mom. As I did, I could feel my vertebrae pop back into place one by one. Pop, pop, pop. They sounded like rifle shots. They had been jammed shut. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Physically speaking, this gruesome accident would forever alter Harry's life. The semi-paralysis, combined with Harry's weight, which he said was around 300 pounds at the time before the accident, only to then balloon to more than 500 pounds, left him to live out the rest of his life in and out of a wheelchair, and mostly the former for those who want to keep count. If the story of Harry J. Knowles were to end after the death of his mom and this horrible accident, it would be a tragedy. But of course, the story doesn't end here. To get us to the day that would make for the perfect, happy ending in the life of Harry J. Knowles, we would have to fast forward to December 8, 2001. This was the day that I, along with more than 200 hardcore movie geeks, got to join Harry as we watched his all-time favorite movie on the big screen. Despite, or maybe because of the many similarities that Harry has with the movie's main character, Citizen Kane is only his eighth favorite film of all time. His number one pick, Marion C. Cooper's 1933 giant monster adventure, King Kong. On a DNA level, King Kong is such an obvious choice to be Harry's favorite film of all time. Instead of something arty or even pretentious or even universally lauded by critics and film scholars like Hitchcock's Vertigo, Ozu's Tokyo Story, or even something beloved yet more accessible like Coppola's The Godfather, King Kong represents pure escapism, perhaps the most essential of essential monster flicks. It's also the story of a gropey, id-driven male ape who can't keep his hands to himself, only to rampage after being placed on the world stage, but we'll delve into that a little later. 
King Kong is a Rorschach test. You could find almost anything in it. Hitler cited it as one of his favorite films. The Black Panther saw it as a film about the enslavement of the black man, only to have him rise up at the first taste of power. I've seen reviews that try to portray the entire film as the Carl Denham character's struggle with impotence, with Andero as the object of his affection, and Kong, the monster from the id, which shifts in perspective against the background in proportion to the fury of his desire. I would like to interpret it as the folly of trying to chain the creative spirit, but that would be more conjecture. The fact is, it's a dream. I actually had the chance to watch King Kong with Harry when he managed to book an ultra-rare archive print of it for his third Buttonomathon Film Festival at the original Alamo Drafthouse location in Austin, Texas. Co-founded by Harry Knowles and former Alamo Drafthouse CEO and co-founder Tim League in 1999, Buttonomathon was perhaps the greatest pedestal from which Harry wielded his power. It was a 24-hour film festival devoted primarily to escapist cinema, but that also hosted guests including Vin Diesel, Seth Rogen, and filmmaker Zack Snyder. It was also the place where actor Mel Gibson showcased the Passion of the Christ before even the Pope himself had a chance to see it. And because there were only 300 seats in the Alamo Drafthouse Auditorium and thousands of people who wanted to attend, you had to apply in order to get in. Here's Paul Alvarado Dykstra, one of the original writers of Ain't It Cool News who wrote under the name RoboGeek, who's actually a legal co-owner of the site from when it was incorporated in 2001. Uh, which, again, is like a reflection on Harry's personality, which is that you have to apply and then be deemed worthy by Harry to then buy a ticket. <laughs> Just, who does that? For those unlucky to have never experienced a button or B-Net before, here's a description by former Ain't It Cool News writer Alan Cerny, a.k.a. Nordling. Uh, so BNAT is like geek Christmas. Uh, you get to watch major premieres that haven't opened in the public yet. You get to watch old movies on 35 millimeter that you've never even heard of or seen before. You get to watch old classics in between some celebrities from Hollywood will show up and talk about their movies that are coming out. Uh, or, uh, even a celebrity from Hollywood will bring their own print, like or Martin Scorsese brought his digital representation of the red shoes. He didn't bring it, but he gave it to Harry. He wasn't actually there, but he gave it to Harry to play. Anything that any movie fan has ever loved in their life is in that space of 24 hours. And to be fair, man, Harry can curate. I, sometimes he thumps it. I ain't gonna lie. But sometimes he knows exactly how to program things. It's, it's just this cornucopia of great cinema. As for me... I could describe BNAT in two ways. The first way I'll describe it is the way I saw it back then. As a hardcore fan of Ain't It Cool News who literally visited the site the first thing every morning, even before I checked my email, I saw BNAT as the ultimate pilgrimage to Austin, Texas, America's mecca for movie watching. It was the chance to assemble with some of the most hardcore movie geeks in the world at the very first Alamo Drafthouse, a new and seemingly very cool movie theater company that was on the cusp of revolutionizing the theater-going experience across the nation. And during this 24-hour, gauntlet-style film fest, we had the opportunity to watch the archive print of King Kong, which Harry praised for being so pristine that he could see actress Faye Ray's nipples through her dress. We also got the chance to watch the premiere of the Cameron Crowe and Tom Cruise drama Vanilla Sky, as well as the unreleased Jim Carrey film The Majestic, featuring a video introduction by writer-director Frank Darabont. In his intro, Darabont gave shout-outs to both Harry and his Los Angeles-based editor and key website collaborator Drew McQueenie, a.k.a. Moriarty, who for my money is one of the greatest film critics in the history of the internet. And while The Majestic has become all but forgotten by audiences now, when they played the film at BNAT and Lauren Holden's character says, You remember movies, but you don't remember your life? The audience exploded cheering like maniacs on the same level as any crowd did when the Death Star explodes in the original Star Wars. They cheered for this line with such fervor and enthusiasm, in part because that's the way they saw themselves. But also because at BNAT, moviegoing was more than just a pastime, or a hobby, or even a passion. It was a human blood sport. For internet-dwelling geeks, oddballs, and misfits like myself, who had devoted and perhaps even frittered away huge chunks of their lives watching movies all day, BNAT was like punk rock. It was the Ramones at CBGB's. It was almost more excitement than the original Alamo Drafthouse, 
a tiny, one-screen theater that had been upconverted somewhat crudely from an old parking garage, could handle. And at the center of it all, there was Harry Knowles, the master of ceremonies, the ringmaster, greeting attendees and receiving gifts, which he referred to in a cringeworthy series of posts where he all but demanded them from attendees as presents. Here's Jeremy Smith, who wrote for Ain't It Cool News under the pen name Mr. Beaks. Pleasants, yes. Uh, the infamous Pleasants article, yeah. What a, oh, that's the really, that's the bratty, that spoiled brat side of Harry was just, like when it would come out on the site. And the thing is, you would, like I could tell Harry, I was like, yeah, you're a real brat. You're a real, you know, and, and then you just get the giggle in the, uh, it, it, you know, that was his thing, the giggle in text or in uh, IM. Because while BNET was a 24-hour film festival that featured premieres of major studio films, it was also Harry's birthday party. I will say, like, the one, like, the opening of the presents was always kind of unseemly to me, that everyone would bring him presents. And I was like, well, you just paid to fly on your own dime and paid for a ticket, paid for accommodations, and you also brought him a present. I was like, you know, you're the... I, I, you know, I think you've given enough. At the start of the fest, Harry greeted the audience in order to dispel a rumor that he would be hosting the premiere of the then unreleased mega blockbuster movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie from the then unknown New Zealand director Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Many in the audience were almost certain the film would play at BNAT that year, given how instrumental Harry and his website had been in terms of pushing Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy through development hell. As early as 1997, Harry used the incredible pull and influence the website had at the time within power circles of the film industry to clear the runway for this bold adaptation of J.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy trilogy, which was originally slated to be a modestly budgeted, seriously truncated two-film production at Miramax with Bob and Harvey Weinstein, who were notorious wranglers of creative control from any director not named Quentin Tarantino. But Harry and his writers, like Drew McWheeney, use their platform to advocate for the film to be more than that. I genuinely think we helped turn the tide on Lord of the Rings. I think it was in real trouble at Miramax. And I think if we had not gotten involved and had not said what we said at the, and all of these things, anytime you saw us do very specific timing on things, um, wasn't an accident. I did a review of the two script Lord of the Rings at a certain point where there was real debate as to whether or not they were moving forward. And that's, that script review was more or less me goading them, saying, you have the goods. This is it. You're already two-thirds of the way there, man. Just break it into three films and you've got it. This is it. And even after helping usher the project from its two-film version at Miramax to its intended three-film version at New Line Cinemas, complete with a much larger budget, Harry and Ain't It Cool continued to help piece together the film during pre-production. They even helped the film land the actor who would play the main character, Elijah Wood, who spent some time down in Austin making the 1998 Robert Rodriguez high school alien invasion thriller, The Faculty, which incidentally featured Harry in a small role as one of the school's teachers. Not only did Harry manage to convince Wood to audition for the part, they also helped him record an audition tape, allegedly in Harry's backyard. Here's Alan Cerny again. I mean, people can say what they want. I feel like Annie Cool was a huge, not a huge part, but definitely a part of it. I think that Elijah Wood got his part because Harry Knowles encouraged him to go for it. I wasn't there for a lot of that, so I don't know. It's only my what I've been told from, from people. But I mean, I know like Elijah Wood submitted his audition tape because Harry encouraged him to do that. Uh, I know that, that Peter Jackson and Harry had been corresponding for a long time. And from what I understand, when there was frustration between Peter Jackson and, and you know, the upper the upper producing team at the time they wanted to make it one movie and then two movies and he had to fight to get it to three movies all that stuff he was interacting with harry the whole time because they're both king kong enthusiasts harry's his fa it's his favorite movie and and they would just talk about it and 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 harry was always supportive of that film uh i think between ain't it cool news and the one ring.net we had the whole lord of the rings saga covered uh, anytime casting would come up, uh, set visits would come up and those set visits were not just really set visits. I mean, they were, I mean, they were big, uh, productions. Harry was there for weeks. Before the Lord of the Rings trilogy, New Zealand director Peter Jackson was largely known 
are perhaps unknown for making gory, raunchy, and low-budget movies like Meet the Feebles or Brain Dead, aka Dead Alive. His highest-grossing film, the Michael J. Fox supernatural comedy thriller The Frighteners, topped out at $30 million domestically. While the fact that Jackson managed to finagle hundreds of millions of dollars to film three back-to-back fantasy epics can be attributed to a variety of factors that have nothing to do with Harry or Ain't It Cool News, it's also true that Ain't It Cool News was a huge help on many levels during many stages of the production. Most importantly, the website was ready to speak out whenever Jackson hit a roadblock, like studio execs who, noting the lack of potential screen time for female characters, wanted to make changes to the story, like expanding Liv Tyler's Arwen character by turning her into a warrior princess. They also offered the studio note that Samwise Gamgee should be rewritten as a woman. When issues like this would arise from behind the scenes, an anonymous crew member from the production would reach out to Harry to share their grievances. According to former Ain't It Cool writer C. Robert Cargill, that anonymous source from the Lord of the Rings set was more than just a crew member. There was a whole series of times where we were getting reports from people on the set of Lord of the Rings and, you know, complaining about, well, you know, the studio's doing this weird thing over here and, you know, we're concerned about this and, oh, can you believe this idea that, that Peter Jackson just threw out? Oh my God, this is, this is stupid. They're doing it wrong. And we had a whole series of leaks from that set. And, you know, Peter Jackson would very regularly pull the crew together and yell at them and go, we, we can't have these leaks. These leaks have to stop. Um, we can't, you know, I've got the studio coming down on me. And you, guys, do not send to anyone. Do not talk to anyone. You do not understand what you're doing. Peter was the one sending all of them. <laughs> Like it was Peter playing games with the studio and so whenever they would not give him a thing or they would make a bad creative decision, he would write as a member of the crew complaining about it and get it, you know, um, and Harry would run it uh, because it was a legitimate thing coming from a crew member he knew. <laughs> he confirmed the source and had it written anonymously. And there were things that would happen like that regularly um, that... Um, uh, people would, uh, from behind the scenes of stuff, kind of meddle with the um, uh, meddle with the narrative by uh, by becoming sources, and it was a very strange time for uh, for news because nobody, you know, everybody assumed, oh, that was some janitor who wrote that in. No one ever thought Peter Jackson would be the guy. I get that the very idea that a movie news website from Austin, Texas, could have such an impact over the Lord of the Rings trilogy sounds completely insane especially when you consider that Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies gross nearly $6 billion, and that's billion with a B, dollars. But much of this would be echoed by Jackson himself. In a 2013 guest column he wrote for The Hollywood Reporter titled Why I Love Harry Knowles, Jackson agrees that Ain't It Cool News was instrumental in helping him land Elijah Wood to star in the film. Jackson also said, quote, Harry had a major effect on my career path long before I met him. When our Lord of the Rings movies were first announced in 1997, there was a fair degree of negativity from the media in general. Much of it was based on my lack of Hollywood track record and general bewilderment as to why I was the guy who would be making these films. I felt it was a negativity that would be hard to shake off while I was buried away in New Zealand making these movies. So I contacted Harry and asked him if he would like to invite his readers to ask me 20 questions about our Lord of the Rings adaptation. Nothing would be off limits. I wanted to connect directly with both the fans of the Tolkien book and the fans who knew my previous work, both were reading Ain't It Cool News. Within hours of posting his request for questions, Harry had thousands of responses, which made a big impression on Miramax, which was funding Lord of the Rings at the time. I answered the 20 questions as best I could, and it created a goodwill that saw us through the release of the movies. End quote. So given the fact that Ain't It Cool News and Harry were so instrumental in getting Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy released in the relatively untampered state that it had become, it was disappointing to hear that Harry could not secure a premiere of Fellowship of the Ring at BNET. Or so we thought. We soldiered on through the day and night, watching, and in some cases enduring, a lineup of eight different films. My favorite of which was Roger Corman's pithy, winningly nimble film Rock All Night. Seriously, if you like movies where characters use biting, hurtful dialogue to cut down their enemies like razor blades, check it out. It's great. I love this film. I heard it. Stinks. Stinks? My joke stinks? Oh, Squirt said my joke stinks. 
It stinks. Almost as much as you, fatso. I stink? reason he's laughing so hard is he forgot the punchline. Can't finish the joke, the drunken phony. Then we got to the last movie of the evening. Or morning, rather, since it had become daytime again. Harry said there would be a video introduction beamed in via satellite. And suddenly, Peter Jackson and his Weta Workshop creative director, Richard Taylor, appeared on screen. The audience roared. It's going to happen, we thought. We're going to get to see the Fellowship of the Ring. Then Jackson disappointed us again by echoing that no, in fact, we would not be watching that film because it was slated to premiere a week later at a New York benefit for the survivors of the terrorist attacks on 9-11. But Jackson had a consolation prize for us. He had managed to uncover a brand new print of the 1923 silent film Salome, which Peter Jackson boasted was the movie that featured the birth of the tracking shot. Not only that, but Jackson stated this newly restored version of the film would be three hours long. Wrapping a nearly 22-hour grueling movie binge by watching a three-hour silent film I had never heard of before didn't seem like a fitting end to this cinematic adventure. But I figured, what the hell? Maybe the movie was actually good? And worst case scenario, at least I could get some sleep before I had to immediately jump on a plane to go back home. The movie started with a series of slow iris-in shots of people's faces, and I was getting ready to drift into a much-needed sleep. But after 30 seconds of watching the film, it broke. Peter Jackson and Richard Taylor were back on the screen again. There was a technical difficulty, Jackson said, and he wasn't sure what he could play now that his three-hour restoration of this biblical epic would be unavailable. Then suddenly, Harry Knowles, the master showman, shouted at the screen as if Jackson and Taylor could hear him and said, Fucking play Fellowship of the Ring! Jackson reacted to Harry by looking shocked. He then goaded the audience once more by asking us if we really wanted to watch The Fellowship of the Ring. We screamed so loud that if we were one decibel point louder, the roof on the building of this tiny, one-screen cinema would have collapsed. It was then that Peter Jackson agreed to let us watch the movie. After that, if Peter Jackson and the staff of the original Alamo Drafthouse had managed to open a bay door and reveal a 700-pound grizzly bear and say, but first you must kill this animal using nothing but your hands, I wonder how many of us would have been willing at that point to leap into the jaws of death. But no, our next challenge would not be so dangerous or violent. We were simply sworn to secrecy. The story about how the film was supposed to premiere a week later at the 9-11 benefit in New York was not actually a lie. They told us not to tell anyone that we saw the movie, nor to write about it online. And at least in terms of the latter, every single person in attendance that day kept that promise. The entire audience also had to be escorted out of the theater so that corporate security guards from the studio could search our bags and pat us down to ensure that we did not have cameras or recording equipment. Once we were all seated again, the movie started. Maybe I'm biased, given the fantastic way I got to see it. Maybe it's because I was so physically and mentally exhausted that the movie simply just burned itself into my subconscious like hypnosis or an implanted memory. Maybe I'm just saying this because it was actually that good, but The Fellowship of the Ring was a truly splendid film. A movie that beguiles the mind with simple movie magic that dates from the beginning of film history. Yes, there are these huge battle scenes, a giant troll and a balrog, and a plethora of CGI-enhanced action set pieces. But for me, it's true spectacle happens during the quiet scenes, when the tiny hobbits and dwarves, all played by regular-sized actors, stand side-by-side -side with their larger human and elf counterparts to talk, share a meal, or march across the tops of mountains. And through its seamless blend of in-camera forced perspective and digital effects, it all looked real, as if Jackson, Taylor, and company had managed to travel to Middle-earth and film a documentary. It was also the first time that special effects seemed, well, special, since Jurassic Park or Terminator 2. Alan Cerny, who was in the same theater that day, remembers how the experience made him feel. At first, Ben Namathani came in and he said, I didn't get Lord of the Rings, guys. I just want you to know that up front, I don't, we're not going to see it tonight. So I'm sorry, we're not going to see it. And I believed it, because it's fucking hairy, and I'm, and I'm in full-on hero worship of the guy. And, uh, and then at the end of the show, at the end, it says, okay, well, 
guess what? We're playing Fellowship of the Ring. And I started crying. I, you know, I, I was freaking out about that. And, and that, was, that was a big deal. I left that theater exhausted but energized. I was in a literal euphoric state because I was certain I had experienced something that would soon take over the entire world. That a revolution in the way Hollywood was making films was not only happening, but winning. And that Harry Knowles and his team of regular and guest writers were at the center of it all. But if you were to ask me how I saw it now, the description would be less celebratory or grandiose, because there were so many things I didn't know. For instance, I didn't know that Jasmine Marriott, the hardcore fan of the site that we met at the beginning of this show, dreamed as I did to have the chance to attend BNAT. I also didn't know that when she finally got the opportunity in 2005, that it was far worse than the experience that I had. I didn't know that the studio sent all these unreleased movies to Harry as part of a long-term plan to court both him and his site in an attempt to buy positive hype and influence. I didn't know that many of the writers who worked for the site did so for years without regular pay, and that even more of them were never paid at all. I didn't know that by convincing Hollywood to cater to the entitled and sometimes even childish demands of the internet movie geek audiences, the studios would cease creating medium-budgeted films based on original ideas, and instead they would devote themselves almost entirely to making franchises, sequels, prequels, reboots, and cinematic universes calibrated specifically to the core demographic that Harry and other movie news websites like his had created. I didn't know that the women who continued to write for Ain't It Cool News endured a barrage of sexist and hateful comments from fans of the site, known as talkbackers, creating a work environment that was hostile and even traumatic. And worst of all, I didn't know what we would all learn in 2017 when it was reported that some of the women who were part of the Austin film scene were repeatedly sexually harassed and sexually assaulted by Harry Knowles. I also didn't know that there are stories we are still not able to share because the women involved are simply not comfortable with coming forward. In short, the story is at times worse than people know and worse than they might ever know. This podcast is not an attempt to rehabilitate Ain't It Cool News or its founder by an admitted former fan of the site. While the site still exists, it's basically gone now. It should probably never come back to what it used to be. At the same time, within the shattered legacy of Ain't It Cool News, there are stories worth telling. Stories about survivors. Stories about creative triumph. Stories about the writers who contributed to the site for years, frequently without being paid for their work, and how they built the site into the institution it became before having to walk away empty-handed when it was destroyed. Stories about how Hollywood used to be afraid of the power of the internet before realizing it could be tamed and controlled far more precisely than traditional media outlets like newspapers. And lastly, we will hear the story of how one person launched a digital rebellion in order to bring truth to power and stick it to the man, so to speak, only to become the man himself when he was seduced by his own power. of Download, the rise and fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News titled Citizen Knowles and the Lord of the Geeks was written, edited, and narrated by Joe Scott. It was executive produced by Christina Bell, with sound engineering by Eddie Garcia, production assistance by Reese Allen, and online production by Janessa Smith. It features Ben Jones as the voice of Harry Knowles. Music credits include original theme music and other songs by Chester Enders Biguazda, as well as music by Expo Pulse, Great Freak, White Bones, Alexandra Woodward, Kikaroo, Flau, and Trevor Kowalski. 
The song you're listening to right now is at the movies on Quaaludes by the Flaming Lips from their fantastic new album, American Head. This episode also features archival music and audio clips from a variety of films and TV series. And if I could only recommend one film from that list, it would have to be the Roger Corman film, Rock All Night. Seriously, folks, if you haven't seen that movie yet, please do. It's definitely worth a watch. Download The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles is produced by Mixtape Media. Make sure to visit our website at downloadpod.com. That's download with a W instead of an A. Pod is in podcast.com. There you can read show notes, ask a question, or even leave a message that can be played on the air. For the next chapter in this story, we will travel back to the Usenet days of the World Wide Web to explore the origins of one of the greatest movie critics in the history of the internet, as well as how he got sucked into the world of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. All of this and more. So join us then as we dial up, log on, and download. Files done. Goodbye.